Hi, my name is John Petts. I'm the Performance Director of Pentathlon GB. You're listening to the Olympic Mindset Podcast, brought to you by NAHT. My biggest fear is going back to that place. I was really struggling with the fact I put myself in that position. One of my biggest tests I think I've had. That's the critical bit. And I couldn't really blame anyone but myself. Hello, and welcome to the Olympic Mindset. Join us as we explore stories from elite individuals and learn what it takes to be a leader. The Olympic Mindset podcast welcomes you to a network of inspirational individuals and signposts what it takes to succeed. We will take this opportunity to map the mindset of Olympium and apply these learnings to each of us. Thanks for joining me at the Olympic Mindset Podcast. Hello and welcome to episode three of the Olympic Mindset Podcast, brought to you in association with NEHT, the School Leaders Union. I'd just like to take a second to thank our partners and thank our sponsors, who are all values-based organisations. The reason we put this podcast together is because leadership can be a lonely position and sometimes it's just nice to hear a message from an inspirational individual and try and relate the practical advice you hear in those stories back to your own situation. We are genuinely delighted with the feedback we've received so far and the amount of people that this podcast has resonated with and one of those people is Hannah and she sent an absolutely lovely message to myself saying... I'm listening to the Olympic Mindset and the Devon Harris interview, which is so interesting and informative. So many transferable lessons to all sectors of leadership. I think there's something in many great leaders with purpose and drive coming from impoverished backgrounds and having real grit. Devon clearly is one of them. You're a great interviewer and I will definitely be following. Thank you, Hannah, for taking the time to reach out and send that positivity back to us. If you would like to book one of the motivational speakers or get in touch with any of them, please contact us via our website and we'll happily put you in touch with them. Thank you and enjoy today's episode of the Olympic Mindset Podcast. Right, so former performance analyst at Glamorgan Cricket Club, Head of Performance at English Table Tennis, Head of British Paracycling, and currently working as the Pentathlon GB Performance Director. Thanks for joining me this week on the Olympic Mindset Podcast. John Pett, how are you? Great, thank you. It's uh, another busy week with trying to figure out how uh, I navigate a new sport, uh, having been through a few different ones before, but hopefully that will stand me in good stead. Absolutely. And navigating the fact that you are relocating and moving house and lots of other things going on as well. Yeah, the challenge of, of moving means you've not just got to move kind of your head and your mindset, but you've also got to move physically and and try and be close to it. And, and that's always been something I've kind of stood by, that I think you've got to be immersed in your environment to really get the best out of yourself and those around you. So um, I had the option of not relocating and, and kind of coming here a few days a week, etc. And and I, that wasn't right. So um, fully in the process of relocating to the southwest of England. Was that a sacrifice that's easy to make for you to move home and uproot and move again? I've been able to kind of be fairly career focused on what do I want to try and get out of things. And th- this was a, an opportunity of a challenge that is unlike any other, I think, in, in my world. So to really kind of go and have a crack at it, I was like, I've got to move. Um, and, and I'd rather go where something will be really stimulating and, and challenging rather than stay in a role that, either I'm not finding 
that challenge from it or it, the passion's kind of dipping a little bit or it, I'm not as, as happy as I was, etc. So I'd, I'd rather be somewhere that's... I've often equated the role I have as being the person who's putting the jigsaw together. And there's all these different bits of a jigsaw from athletes to uh, staff to the environment, culture and everything else. And can you put those pieces in the right place? And um, therefore, for me, the jigsaw puzzle itself needs to look to then put, be able to then have the right point, you know, bits to put in the right places. John, obviously, I met you when you were a lecturer at UIC, University of Wales Institute, Cardiff. And, you know, you've had a pretty steep trajectory of a career path since then. And, you know, from the outside, it's looked pretty smooth sailing. Has it been that way always or has there been challenges? Has there been any difficulties? Yeah, I mean, there's always plenty of challenges and, and difficulties. And, and there's often that kind of cliche phrase of, you know, you learn more from your failures or your mistakes than you do from anything else. I think that's true to a degree, but I also actually think you can learn a huge amount from your successes. You can reflect on them. I'd pick, you know, if I was looking at the challenges, uh, you mentioned at the time when, when I lectured at university, absolutely loved it. But ultimately, if I reflect back on that period of time, I became really complacent. You know, I, I enjoyed the process. I enjoyed what I was doing. I didn't take it as serious as I should have done. I didn't really reflect on things and think, how can I do this better? I just kind of got into a bit of a routine. Um, when it came around to moving from kind of a, temporary member of staff into a full-time permanent role and needed to apply for that I was unsuccessful because I didn't really put the effort in and I was then redundant for 14 months out of choice because I decided at that point look I kind of always set out to work in sport and then I wasn't really or I was doing bits of it but now this was my opportunity to say I'm going to really kind of always reinvent myself and go this is the world I want to work in so I'll have the time I'll give the time to get the right job I was really fortunate. My parents were fantastic. They supported me from afar with a bit of money to try and keep me going, pay my rent. I signed on to job seeking allowance, which was probably had a really big impact because you suddenly had to kind of go, what is going on with, with your life? Where are you at? You, you, give, you get given perspective and kind of the question of, do you want to commit to actually having a career and really building something and prioritize that or do you want to just kind of play around with this and think, well, I could have a job, might not have a job. So that was a big kind of kick up the backside, really, I think, for me. Um, but I was also really fortunate. I had a fantastic group of friends um, who kept my kind of spirits up and that kind of friendship group, social aspects, gave me opportunities to dip in and out of different um, experiences and I think helped me through that that difficult time. So you, you kind of your failures can help to really mould you as a person. And I think that has a lot. I often reflect on the kind of when people go, what's your biggest fear? Fear of failure often is something people will say. My biggest fear is going back to that place where I kind of was really struggling with the fact I'd put myself in that position mm. and I couldn't really blame anyone but myself. Um, and therefore, I don't want to go back to that point. And I kind of became a bit of a workaholic as a result of it, which in a lot of ways probably has helped me to have that rise that I've had and that success because if I hadn't worked as hard, I wouldn't have taken some of the opportunities. And there are often somebody would um, go, oh, this needs doing, or something became apparent from a strategic perspective. You go, well, I'll latch onto that and I'll do it. And you build up your CV, people recognise you for things and, and you make progress. So John, that's great to hear that you turned your failure into the thing that drove you to be extremely successful with GB Paracycling. So I'm really interested to hear that you started to touch on personal responsibility. I'm a big believer in personal responsibility. I believe that if you find yourself in a situation you're unhappy with, then it's your responsibility to find a change, whether that means having a really 
a straight, open, honest conversation with somebody or just taking yourself out of that situation. I believe that most of the time, not always, we have the ability to change our circumstance. It's interesting, actually, that we're seeing this kind of thing happen at the moment in education and I know in the NHS with friends of mine that are doctors, they're going through the same sort of thing. Although I would never advocate that, I would love to keep great people in our profession you do have to respect that sometimes people need to make a change for their own sake, for their own well-being. So, John, it sounds a little like that's what you've been through over the last few years. So I appreciate this is quite a, a personal question, but if you don't mind being honest and answering this one for me, was there a situation or a circumstance where you thought, do you know what, despite all the success, despite everything that's gone well, despite the fact that I live for this job, I'm not finding fulfillment anymore, I need to make a change. I look back at the Tokyo Paralympics and I led a team of teammates of athletes, coaches, uh, scientists, medics, sports, a big support team. We've gone out to Tokyo. We set out five years earlier with a, a target of um, we're going to be the most successful uh, cycling team ever at Paralympic Games. And we achieved that. But also uh, every athlete returned home with a medal. So we took 20 athletes to the Games, 20 athletes returned as medalists. A lot of them as Paralympic champions. That's a pretty special achievement. But I didn't feel fulfilled from it. And that was the point where I kind of knew I need to change and I wasn't as happy as I could be and, and I needed something different. And that's why part of why I am where I am now. So even that's one of the biggest successes of my life. And a lot of people will go, how fantastic that was. Actually, I've learned probably more about myself from that than I have about some of the other kind of challenges and failures I've had along the way. That's fascinating. There's not not very often that you hear somebody be as honest as well. Thank you, first of all, for the honesty. But also sometimes, like you said, success can lead to complacency. Complacency can lead to, you know, well, a lack of competence or a lack of performance. I think, you know, what you just said reminded me of a favorite quote of mine. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to us. That's from Tolkien from Lord of the Ring. It's really interesting to hear you talk about you selecting things that will make you happy or make you feel fulfilled how do you tap into what actually drives you how did you discover what that was was there a process i've been really fortunate i've worked with some amazing people and i've met some amazing people like the whether it's through people i studied with you know friends who've been you know, friends for life i think after the the redundancy period and then starting in with table tennis for a long time and going through that i learned that really to get the best out of people you want fun and happiness and enjoyment because if you don't enjoy it. You're not going to give everything to it. You're not going to have, be as passionate about it. You're not going to really test yourself because you're only over giving part of yourself to the process. You're kind of almost denying uh, yourself the opportunity to go and deliver and achieve what you've really set out for. So mm -hmm. go into it with a smile, try and enjoy it. There's, um, there's also a, a, a kind of quote, I've always been a big film fan. And so to throw a quote back to you, there's uh, one from Gladiator, which was Marcus Aurelius of, Death smiles at us all. All a man can do is smile back. So everything's going to come to you. You've kind of got to be pragmatic. You've got to um, smile at what you're doing and, and just go, do you know what? Everything that's going to happen is going to happen. You can only control what you can control. You know, that old adage of only control the controllables. A lot of those things, they, they are, you know, those cliches for a reason because they're kind of true. I think as you get older, you do learn about yourself a lot more. You reflect. I did a 360 review with staff and athletes and I, I threw it out to an athlete group as well as a staff group at cycling. And then um, I was kind of pushed a bit by uh, a former boss to present that back to the group, but present it back with some vulnerability. And I hadn't really ever thought of doing that before. 
of what I would really get back from that or that the impact that being vulnerable can have that actually we're only all human and we need each other and as a team we can be that much better so I presented it back to uh, to everybody but I also gave a a wider reflection on who I am and where I come from and the impact that like my dad had on me and that he ultimately was my kind of hero my idol growing up so you start reflecting on that and you start thinking I'm really fortunate like I've had all these opportunities I've had a really good upbringing I've had these chances so I should be happy I should be positive about it I'm lucky so you build on that but also I, I, when I presented it I got a, a bit of feedback from one of the mechanics who was relatively new into the group, had uh, been probably with us as a team about six months. He wrote a note afterwards and just handed it to me at the end of the, the day. And I've still got the note and it's scribbled on kind of one of those, you go to like a conference center and you get the little note, notepads. He just said, this was the most, the single biggest thing you could have done for this team. Thank you for showing vulnerability and giving us permission to do the same thing. And when you get good feedback from people, it can mean the world. And so one of the things I've, and I was having a conversation with a colleague from Team GB earlier today, and I gave her some feedback as she was the chef de mission in Beijing, uh, the Winter Olympics. And I said, the feedback I've had from people has been that you were phenomenal. As a leader, you had empathy, you cared about people. And her response was, thank you. And but I kind of added on to it. I said, the reason I've told you that is because in our industry, people don't stop and give positive feedback enough. Yeah. We often give negative feedback. And one of the things I set out to do, because I want to be a happier person, I want to enjoy things. I want to surround myself with more joy, more fun and more positive comments and feedback. And that doesn't mean we can't talk about the negatives and we can't critique things, but we can still do it in a positive frame of mind. John, this is fascinating to me to hear the switch in your mentality from fear of failure to the pursuit of joy. Where did that happen? Where did this change come from? I really needed guidance and support, and that's where the NAHT really came in. They were always there with regular communication, and I knew that there was somebody that I could talk to if I needed to. I'm a member of a local branch, so again, I could talk to people who are in the same situation as me, not just a, a very local perspective, but a bit more of a wider perspective as well. Knowing that other people are there in the same situation as me really helped. NAHT is here to defend and promote the rights of all school leaders. So together, we can create a better education system for educationalists and learners alike. For more information, email us at joinus at naht.org.uk or call us on 0300 30 30 333. Um, the biggest thing that's probably changed me as a person and I never saw this coming, um, and I've reflected on it quite a bit in the last couple of years, was the moment I worked in Paralympic sport. And I'd never set out to work in Paralympic sport, but I applied for a number of different jobs after when I was kind of moving towards the end of my career at table tennis, um, moved into the cycling world, and you get so much perspective because you, you cut through all the, oh, this isn't great in life, that's not great in life. It's just down to... I want to perform. I want to do well. I want to enjoy this process. And um, there were three um, athletes that probably had the biggest impact on me, but I'll kind of cover two. Um, one is a gentleman called David Smith, who I would wholeheartedly recommend you uh, getting involved with this. Um, fascinating individual and has had um, 
effectively six different surgeries to remove uh, a cancerous tumor from his spinal cord in his neck. And after each um, surgery, he has um, lost some motor function. Now, you can, and he's got to the point now where he's partially paralyzed down his left side. Now, it'd be easy for somebody to say, life's against me. You know, I can't do this. It's not great. But instead, he gets up every morning, he's determined and he's driven and he will go out and he will fight for what he wants to do, but with a, with a smile. And you spend time with someone like that and you're kind of like, oh, blimey neck. Any of my little issues in life are not really issues, are they? Another athlete um, who sadly passed away um, back in 2020, uh, Liz Clark Saul, who um, wasn't an athlete that many people will ever recognise the name. And she was part of our, our team for about five years. Uh, the last two years, um, she was battling with terminal cancer. But the fact I was able to support her beyond sport and uh, and help her with life and feeling that she didn't have to worry about everything else. She could focus on enjoying the last day she had. So going back to your Tolkien quote, she very much did that. And again, it gave perspective. And it kind of is really difficult to kind of go, life's tough or life's bad. It's like, unfortunate. I get to work in this world with Olympic champions. I've worked with Paralympic champions. I've worked with some of my sporting idols. Like, what's bad about that? So I think as life's gone on, life changes and you learn and you learn about yourself but they're, they're the kind of bits of you know the toughness of figuring out who you want to be the the perspective you get from meeting some of the people on the journey um changing environment i do think changing environment is a big thing because it helps to keep you fresh and and again kind of look, take what you're learning from different places with you um and learn something new and all of those things it's really difficult working in this world to ever feel like it's a bad thing so I think all of those things have kind of given me that really positive kind of mindset, really. John, it's brilliant to hear how optimistic you are about everything. And I think that definitely, by the way, you know, you've alluded to the fact we've spoken to other people on this podcast is a very common thread, actually, kind of being an optimist, a glass half full type personality. Um, I'm really interested because obviously my intention today was to talk to you about being a leader and you've barely spoken about performance. Everything you've spoken about is people, empathy, vulnerability, relationships. Would you say you're more relationship focused or more performance and results focused? And how do you balance the two? Because, John, I must say you've been credited with taking the nation back to the top of the cyclist medal table for the Paralympics, which, you know, credit to you. Amazing job. But then how do you get that balance right? Because you are judged on your results as much as obviously you're driven by relationships. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a really good question. And I think there's kind of different versions of me, if you like, if I answer that question. There's one as like, um, so I look at all sport and I'm as a sports fan. And if I'm not involved in it, I will probably be a bit more performance focused. And um, so I'll, I'll watch, for example, um, Bath Rugby or sports since a kid. And I will be quite critical or I'll be like, blimey, it's not good enough. Why aren't we winning, et cetera. And I'll be more performance focused because you're removed from it. The more you're involved in the process and, and the, uh, the kind of the project, if you like, the more you realise you can't do it on your own. And actually you, you are a, a cog in that wheel and therefore the relationship does become important. Um, there will be times in anyone in, in any kind of role where the performance focus will become pretty critical because you could be under pressure to deliver results. So I felt when I was at table tennis, I was under a huge amount of pressure to go and deliver some results. Sport wasn't, it lost its funding, trying to get back to it. 
um, wasn't performing on a world stage and therefore kind of almost had to sell our soul to get some funding by going, do you know what? I think we can deliver five medals at the Commonwealth Games in Glasgow. When I told the team that what I'd basically signed us up to, everyone was like, it's never going to be possible. <laughs> I was like, no, I believe it can be if we work as a team and that's how we do it. Plotted out the strategy of how we get there, delivered five medals. And everyone's like, how did you know? And I'm like, because well, I believed in you and I believed in us. Um, cycling, when I got there, you kind of start with the pressure of everything that's come before you and all the results. And you could be really easy to kind of go, everything's about the medals, the success. And I probably was a bit more like that then. But then you kind of open your eyes to actually, how did you get there? And um, we went to a road world champs in 2015 and it was terrible. We got, we won, when I say we won two medals, one athlete won two gold medals. Um, she actually wasn't staying with us in, in the team and nobody else won a medal, but everyone learned from the experience and it made us better for it. And I think at that point, you start actually reflecting more on the relationships, the experience, the process than actually the outcome, because we couldn't actually control how many medals we got because you can't control what somebody else does. What you can do is go, how are we doing this together? Can we make it more fun? And um, so I think I've learned to become more about relationships and less about outcome. Um, as I've learned about enjoying the process and the journey and wanting to spend it with good people. And equally, I think I recognized more so towards the end of the table tennis journey, very early on in cycling, about recruiting people into the team, that it was about character and value added as a person and a, that being their skill set more than what you've done. And, and I've made a couple of bad recruits in, as a leader uh, where I, I kind of thought that we might be recruiting a good enough character, but actually we leaned, leaned more towards results because it was a domain we didn't know as much about. Um, rather than the character of the individual and going, this person, will they fit in this team? Will they add value to this team? Will they help drive us collectively? Do they want the same kind of things? You know, can we enjoy this with them? And you start surrounding yourself with good people and therefore the relationship, I think, comes with it as a result. John, do you know you've described something called the Dunning-Kruger effect? Do you know what that is? No, you have to explain that to me. So it's basically a cognitive bias whereby people overestimate their knowledge or ability in an area where they don't have experience. So <laughs> when you speak there about you criticizing rugby, when you're a fan, that, that's probably because you, you're suffering yeah. from Dunning-Kruger, the Dunning-Kruger effect, which essentially says you don't have enough knowledge to comment. So you're actually missing what's important. Yeah. The roles that you go into, you know, you're obviously going in with more of an open mind and accepting that you don't know everything yeah. and you need to kind of, learn and earn credibility as quickly as, as possible in order to lead your team so I think the expression used in the study is uh, stood at the summit of Mount Stupid um, or the <clears> peak <throat> of Mount Stupid so in other words you stood at this peak where your confidence is at its absolute highest but actually your competence your ability your knowledge is at the lowest it will ever be and then yeah. everybody suffers this realization whereby you realize you don't know everything and all of a sudden you have an absolute crash of confidence before you pick yourself up again it seems to me yeah. that you kind of skip that period because you're going in with an open mind. Would you agree with that? Uh, I, I think that completely makes sense. I think I've been fortunate almost that because I, so in a sporting context, I was never an elite athlete, never been a coach within any of the sports. Um, I, I mean, I played tabletop as a kid. I can ride a bike, badly, most people <laughs> will tell you. Um, 
you know, or, or hardly ever will be the other comment from some of my cycling colleagues. Um, and like pentathlon, I've not done much of it. And again, I've played cricket to a, a club level, but I've kind of always known I'm not the best. Um, but what I, so therefore I go in, hopefully with a bit of humility of, I, I need to work with and I need to bounce off other people. But if I can try and get the best out of everybody else who have way more knowledge than me, surely we'll be more successful that way. So I think I've almost, um, I've kind of been fortunate with that, that I've kind of lucked out of coming into it from a position where I've had to, it's forced me into that mindset rather than necessarily I maybe chose that mindset or I've had to learn that mindset because victim of circumstance, I'm not the expert in anything. Um, I think I became somewhat of an expert over time in some of those roles, but it took me time to get there. And I enjoyed that process of learning and becoming more knowledgeable because it meant I could be more effective and I could have better conversations with those that I was a team member of and with, rather than I sought out the knowledge to be the world's expert um, because I want to know everything about everything and be at that summit. Because that doesn't actually really interest me. Um, I don't want to be the world's expert. I actually got challenged at cycling when I was I basically said I was leaving. And um, my boss basically sat down with me and said, no, you should stay. And I was like, okay, why, why should I stay? He said, because you could be the world-leading expert in Paralympic sport, like paracycling. Para I was like, well, I've kind of got to a point where I'm pretty content with what I know. And I've challenged myself and I've learned a lot, but I want to learn something new now. And therefore, I've gone and put myself in another environment where I'm by far the expert in pretty much anything other than um, some of how the system works around the sport. And there's things I've learned from, from other sporting environments that I can bring in that will help this team and my new team and take it forward. But again, I still don't have the knowledge. I'm not at the summit in anything within the sport. So I, I need, we all need to work together. So that sense of teamwork then comes out uh, and collaboration and drive together. Pearson, the world's learning company, we're all about supporting lifelong learning. And as we all know, one of the best ways to learn is from each other. That's why we asked almost 7,000 teachers and senior leaders in England about schools today and what their future should look like. In our brand new Pearson School Report, you'll discover what they have to say on the topics that matter, from the barriers to learning that we need to break down, to evolving what students learn and how. Whether you're looking for a different perspective or to spark new ideas, there's something in the report for you. Read more at go.pearson.com forward slash the school report and join the conversation on social media with the hashtag Pearson School Report. Really interesting point you raised, and I and I do want to touch on it because throughout the entirety of these podcasts and pretty much every inspirational or motivational book I read comes from somebody that comes from traumatic or difficult circumstances. They've kind of achieved whatever they've achieved against the odds, and then everybody's really inspired and motivated. I yeah. have never spoken to anyone that has actually sat there and said, I've been given every opportunity. I've got no reason to not succeed other than my own apathy or laziness really so that was quite inspirational to me and I'll tell you why because I came from an area where not many people went to university I am the first in my family to get into this sort of position and I believe that my drive came from that 
maybe that desire, that competitiveness as a kid. And it's kind of driven me throughout my entire career, not just in education, but in football and everything I've done. Now, I've got three kids or two kids and one on the way, as you know, and I'm really worried that the way I'm raising them and where I'm raising them will breed this kind of apathy almost or this kind of expectance that life will fall in their lap. So I want to know how you tapped into that drive despite having everything to fall back on you know you've already said you could fall back on your parents supporting you you've had a good education there were many jobs you could have done to earn a similar salary how did you tap into that drive and where did it come from um that's a really good question i kind of i wanted for nothing as a kid so i got to try every sport i could imagine um you know when i was a kid yes granted i, I probably watched cool runnings and went i want to do bobsleigh we've interviewed Evan harris by the way so you can listen to yeah, this yeah. podcast <laughs> exactly and I, I sat down with my mum the other night and um, and said, uh, we just chat kind of, I think we were watching something on TV and there was something about kind of where kids were being brought up and so on. And I kind of just turned to my mum and said, look, um, just to re- kind of reassure you, like I, I've grown up, I've had, I wanted nothing. You never kind of pushed me towards having to do anything specific. You let me make my own choices, uh, whether they were right choices or the wrong choices. Um and yet we all make the wrong choices at times, but actually the choices that we make help define us later on in life. Um, but always there was encouragement and there was support. And I also, because I, I was fortunate enough to meet really good people like the cricket group uh, through running the university cricket squad, even when it got to the point where, you know, I lost my job, I still had a lot of people kind of around me, encouraging me and supporting me. Lee, one of my kind of closest friends, who is a professional golfer, teaching pro, he claims he's a professional athlete. I always kind of go, are you sure athlete's the right word here? Um, but he's always kind of challenged me and said, are you sure that's all you want to settle for? That's all you can do. Surely you can do more. I feel lucky and privileged to be where I am. You know, not everyone gets to do what I do. And therefore, actually, you know, keep working at it. Keep keep driving yourself because I suppose there is that fear of, well, what if I don't, then will I lose it? And therefore, I that's probably one of the big drivers. Yeah. And you know what? I do want to make this point now, almost a disclaimer for anybody listening, thinking you've had it easy. It's all fallen easy to you. The reason I wanted to talk to you today is because I knew that you'd lost your job. I know that you'd applied for many, many jobs and been turned down on more than one occasion. And you've alluded to yourself that you're a huge sport fan, but you weren't particularly of a standard that you wanted to be in any. So you have had obstacles to overcome, but for whatever reason, you've got this natural optimism. And I think that kind of always seeing the silver lining for every opportunity is definitely a factor added to the humility of recognizing what you're good at and what you're not good at is probably what drives you so I do want to add that disclaimer there for anybody listening thinking oh it's easy because it hasn't been and and rejection can be tough whatever the form it takes I also want to say you mentioned that something that drives you is the fear of losing everything or the fear that this won't continue or the realization that where you've got to is 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 the peak and you realize that that is a form of imposter syndrome that you're suffering from So oh, definitely. for anyone listening that isn't familiar, imposter syndrome was first written about in a university paper way back in 1978. It's come to the forefront, particularly in the last few years, because a very recent study discovered that about 75% of people, particularly women in high performing positions or senior positions, suffer from imposter syndrome, whereby they think that they got there by chance. They think that they were lucky. They think that this might end at any moment or they might be discovered at any moment. So you're clearly having elements of imposter syndrome that drive you. How do you stop that anxiety from creeping in and crippling you when you need to make an important decision? I do agree. And I think um, as a a lot of people that I come across where there is a form of that there is an element of it you're right kind of touching on the anxiety piece because that's ultimately the bit that could hold you back 
um, particularly if you've got to commit or make a decision or uh, lead a group of people. And you asked, you touched earlier on the kind of performance versus relationships bit. And whilst performance is going well, that makes that anxiety kind of almost disappear because actually that's kind of your reinforcement of all. Must things must be going okay? Maybe this is okay. I do belong. Um, I have earned this. Is, is this what I should be doing? But also then the people around you can also kind of reinforce that feedback I touched on earlier is a critical part of it. People actually giving constructive feedback if it's something that you could maybe be doing better, but also positive reinforcement and feedback about things you do well. And um, that's where you know you've got uh, the right kind of balance if you're getting both and you surround yourself with um, people that can add value to what you're trying to achieve. So I was having a conversation today about um, looking at a kind of an executive, a business, almost a business coach um, for me. And I've been searching for a while for who might be the right fit. And I've um, it got to the point where I was kind of reading a book. It's called Belonging by Owen Eastwood. So if this all works out, he and I might do a bit of work together. Uh, and he's worked in loads of different cultures and environments. But um, I read it and it completely resonated. This um, feeling of kind of manner, uh, the kind of Maori term and the respect to the regard that other people hold you in and if you're getting good feedback from people then you've got and people hold you in high regard you have a high manner that i think reduces your anxiety it means you actually feel like you belong and you're part of this and um so i've kind of asked can i get him please because it just it resonated of that i think is part of how you deal with your imposter syndrome and your feeling of it and I think ultimately it does come back to that feeling of belonging. If I looked at that imposter syndrome piece of, do you feel you belong? Because the bits I've touched on of, um, do I feel like I've been fortunate, lucky to, to be where I am? Well, do I feel I belong there? That's linked to, to that. Um, do I feel like it might fall apart at some point? Again, if I feel like I belong in, in this world, then I'll probably continue in this world. Now it might not be in the same job, it may well be transferring to another sport like I have done, or it might be transferring to another industry where the kind of work I do is transferable to most sectors. Um, so I belong in the, the type of role I do as, as a leader with other people. And that book, Belonging, which I would highly recommend to anybody, um, just completely resonated. And I think it's stuff like that that I kind of go, yeah, I get this. And maybe I, I, am, I am good at what I do because results have been good, but also feedback I've had has been good and I'm enjoying it and I think if I put too much pressure on myself and became too anxious about it I'd stop enjoying it and I think that's the bit that's my own internal barometer of things aren't quite right so I've either got to do something to change it or, or actually things are going okay. See John you mentioned there about transferable skills and obviously once you reach director level or executive leader level that kind of more senior position or even a senior leader or middle leader there begins to be a bit of a skill set that you develop that I believe, and clearly you do as well from what you've just said, can be transferable. So if you were to write on a piece of paper three key features of a leader, what does a leader look like to you? And then just kind of run through those things for me, how they might be transferable. Support improvement of children's physical and mental well-being with Striver from Too Simple. Teachers of all experience levels will feel confident and in complete control. The PE and Wellbeing Package includes over 400 PE lessons supported by six wellbeing units, all housed online, that makes planning and assessment a breeze. 
You don't need any specialist training to deliver impactful sessions and they can be done anywhere without any fancy equipment. Right now, you can access a Striver sample pack completely free, including full lessons for basketball and yoga. Download your free pack at twosimple.com forward slash Olympic Mindset. It's too simple. So I think a leader is somebody who values people um, and wants to empower and get the best out of people. And I think that that transfers into any industry. If you are good with people, you can get the best out of them. People will enjoy it and they'll work harder. They'll be more passionate about it. They'll probably do a better job. So for me, that's a critical piece of leadership. The ability to be happy making decisions. The decision could be you making a decision that it's somebody else's responsibility. People within a team want to know what their role is. So you you make decisions about how people, what people's roles might be or where people fit, that jigsaw I mentioned earlier, um, and you give them some direction. So there's a, in the sporting world, we, we've always had, particularly in Olympic sport, you get this four-year Olympiad and you know, four-year Paralympiad. So you've got that, this is our target in the four years, which is a really nice, chunky kind of period of time to go, right, everybody, this is the direction we're heading in. Um, and everyone go, yeah, right, we're behind that. And that helps to give that clarity. And I think for um, leaders in a lot of industries, they might not have that kind of real end goal or realise what it is. And whereas if you can provide that for them, it means people can kind of get behind it and work together and collaborate and, and help affect it. Um, and then the third one, um, third one would probably be the strategic kind of piece of figuring out how the whole thing works together and that long-term almost uh, kind of bigger picture vision of what do we want to achieve? What is, how do we set this? How do we create the environment? How do we enable people to, to be their best at work and, and also their best in life? And that's why I always say that I think the people part I mentioned first is the number one piece because if you can't get the best out of people, you, your team's always going to struggle um the strategy bit where are we going what do we want to do and that then helps people to understand do i want to go on that on the bus that old saying of are you on the bus um, yeah that's, that's a really yeah. nice analogy and i think you know you've touched on something there that again other guests have spoken about so sophie mckenna particularly spoke about that kind of creating a safe environment for people to flourish so i think what you're alluding to is maslow's hierarchy of needs so you know you've got the physiological needs at the bottom of the pyramid You've then got your safety needs, your love and belonging, your esteem, and then you lead to self-actualization where the high performance comes in. So it sounds to me, or I don't know if you're doing this knowingly or not, that you're creating the, the foundations of that pyramid so that they can step forward and be the best that they can be while you kind of provide that safe structure beneath. Yeah, and I, and I think that's something that the kind of elite sports world is getting better at and is moving towards. How do we lead people as people the whole human being we are built to make mistakes and to learn and to flourish at things so let's create an environment where it's okay to do that so recently i went to um a uh, world cup and uh it was the first time that i'd been in that environment with with some of the athletes um one of them struggled with their fencing performance so she came over to me and the first thing she said to me was i'm really sorry about my performance to which my response was, you do not owe anyone an apology. What have you learned from it? 
that's the thing I'm interested in. She was taken aback because previously the environment would have been one of, well, no, he's not done well enough. But I think it's an example of where the sporting system is moving to. Um, what are we trying to achieve? And that also encompasses the kind of the lifestyle piece. So one of the bits that I've kind of committed to in this role is I want to spend more time with the athletes and the staff looking at what's next for them rather than just the here and now of um, I want to succeed, I want to win an Olympic medal or I want to go to the next competition and I want to get on a podium um, or as a, a member of staff, I just want to be a good this, whatever it is. It's what do you want to aspire to? Where do you want to get to on your journey? How can I help you get there? Yeah. Because then hopefully they feel I've, I'm backing them, I'm supporting them, I'm part of their journey. I'm in the corner. Having worked for the cycling world, there was an independent review here that looked at kind of how we were as a system, supporting athletes, judging athletes, pushing them. In New Zealand, in the cycling world, this is painting cycling in a pretty bad light at the moment. But um, in New Zealand, there were things like drinking cultures, there were um, negative behaviours, um, things being pushed that were inappropriate, et cetera, and, and all sorts of different challenges. In different sports, you often read about it's the environment. Typically, if, if something's not succeeding, a team's not succeeding, it's because there's a problem with the environment. The modern leader, the modern sporting world is getting much better and it's accelerating its growth. We often would look outwards at other industries and you know, Google were, are often kind of heralded as fantastic place to work. It's this you know, 80% of your time you do your job, 20% you can work on anything, company owns it, but we can learn from each other. Sport has done that pretty well in the last particularly 10 years. Um, there's an annual conference that UK Sport uh, put on. It used to be called the World Class uh, Conference. It's now become what's called PLX, Performance Learning X. And um, we bring in external speakers from different environments, different industries. We have someone from Tesla talking sort of about the future. Uh, we had a futurologist that before we started speaking, everyone was like, what the, what's a futurologist? Yeah. Um, and we had... Um, so what's the, a futurologist? You need to tell me. I need to know. Uh, so futurologist, basically looking at what are the trends of, what, what society looking like and what is going to happen. So effectively, it's a strategist. So there's all these different companies coming in and talking to you as balanced with the sporting bit. And I think that's helped us to learn and understand. It's just an experience. It's a journey. It's not the be all and end all. I think something that kind of struck me when I saw that you had all that credit and you, you know, there's some lovely articles written about you and the success you've had in the sport, particularly paracycling. I was quite interested actually to hear how you dealt with the legacy left by athletes like Dame Sarah Story and what she'd achieved in the sport, becoming the most um, accomplished and, and recognised Paralympian cyclist in the world. Um, and also the legacy of Sir Dave Brailsford, you know, with marginal gains theory. How did that impact on your job when you came in? I know obviously you, you were in a slightly different sphere to Sir Dave, Sir Dave Brailsford, <laughs> Sir Dave. Um, but how did that impact on you? Were there elements of that that still run through the sport? Is there bits and pieces that you take away or is that something that you're moving away from towards another theory or kind of business strategy? It always makes me smile, the marginal gains bit. Uh, and I, I once went to Toronto and was fortunate enough to be invited into the Toronto Maple Leafs um, kind of HQ by the general manager and their kind of head of sports science. And the reason they invited me and one of the coaches because we were over there for a competition um, was because they were fascinated by marginal gains in British cycling because they had started using it. And both of us smiled. And uh, we were asked by the GM, why, why are you smiling? I'm like, because we try not to use that term anymore. Um, and it was a bit of a catchphrase. And essentially, all marginal gains is, is do the basics well. If you can do all the basics well, if you, if you do everything well, then you're going to have a high percentage of, of outcome. 
yes, there was pressure felt, I think, by everybody because so David with uh, Shane Sutton, Steve Peters, they've kind of been the main architects, the drivers with a team of very, very capable people. I mean, the, the performance team at cycling, you're talking 80, 85 people. And it wasn't just those three. It was the brains behind that was, was everybody, the collective kind of conscience. And um, so you go in and you kind of thinking, okay, if I look just at the Paralympic bit, London, 21 medals. Oh, sorry, 22 medals. 20 medals in Beijing. It's pre done pretty well. I mean, Beijing was 17 goals out of 20 medals. Rio, we were basically rebuilding. So we knew that we'd lost a group of athletes who had had a, a huge amount of success. I think double figures worth of the medals, as it were, that were won by a number of athletes from London, those athletes retired or were exited from the programme. So it's almost an element of rebuilding. So to then go to Rio, uh, and, and I started there, I had about 18 months before Rio. We came back with 21 medals. Probably were a bit miffed that we didn't quite get 22 or 23 and, and beat London. But we took a huge amount of satisfaction. And actually, it's probably the games I take the most satisfaction from the cycling. Because we, we went there, we did really well. And a lot of our plans and a lot of the things that we worked really hard to figure out came, came true. But we focused on the basics. So Dave had gone. Uh, different group of people. I'm not Sir Dave. I'm not Shane Sutton. I'm not any of those people. So I, I'm me. Um, so I'm going to try and do this my way. In the same way, I've joined this organisation, my new team. A pentathlon and i'm following in the footsteps of jan bartu who was here for 20 odd years has just left after winning both men's and women's gold medals in um in tokyo a lot of people go oh how are you following in jan's footsteps again my response is i can only be me so i've got kind of a similar scenario from coming in cycling as coming in here which is quite nice because i can learn from that i suppose what did you learn john, there, john what that? did you what did you learn from that what are the kind um, of from I think the, the, the key bits I um, probably took were to, to be yourself, to say, look, I can't be somebody else. I can only play to my strengths. Yeah. And um, and again, it kind of reinforces that I need everybody else. Um, we need that sense of team because everyone's got their skill set. Um, but also, I think I've learned that there's a patience in, in uh, change. Uh, I, change takes time. Change can be really frustrating for people. Um change can be tough and can be unnerving and and unless you give some clarity you your team might struggle around you how you hand over to the next person that kind of all blacks um adage of leaving the, the shirt in, a, in the better state than you kind of picked it up um so one of the things i've tried to do at cycling was leave a good kind of knowledge legacy handover uh, direction for people to find things but also remain available to um kind of successes to go if you need me pick up the phone. So you learn about be good to other people because that will come back on you. And then you touched on kind of Dame Sarah and um, a lot of the, yeah, the amazing medalists. And I was fortunate at cycling to work a lot with the likes of Dame Sarah, Jodie Cundy, Neil Fackey, et cetera, from a Paralympic perspective, the likes of Jason Kenny, Laura Kenny, uh, Olympic program, Ed Clancy, um, you know, a huge number of, of people that have been so successful. Sarah, I think when I started, she was probably um, one of my biggest tests I think I've had in a leadership capacity. Sarah is an incredibly independent, very driven, incredibly successful, very considered uh, person. And she's achieved what she's achieved because she deserves to. And she, she's worked hard at it and, um, and she's earned it. But because she had already achieved so, so much success, I would argue that she was probably a bit cynical of who she was bringing into her inner circle. So you had to earn her trust because she was, I wouldn't necessarily say a maverick, but some people might associate kind of maverick tendencies of she operated a bit outside of the program. 
So a lot of people would go, well, she operates in her own way. That's just, she doesn't want to be part of the team rather than ask the question of why do you do this? And um, so we started off a little bit rocky. Um, and then over time, I think she realized actually I cared. And um, there were probably three key parts with Sarah that I think won her over, if that's the right phrase. One day you have to ask her as to whether I did. Um, <laughs> one was uh, Sarah's, Sarah was one of the first athlete mothers in uh, the kind of UK sporting system. Um, had her first, uh, first child just before I started. There wasn't really much support in place as an athlete mother. There were, for example, there was no pregnancy policy as to saying, these are your rights as an athlete. Like you can have time away. This is how things work. These are the protections for you. Um, UK Sport actually only published it last year. So that was kind of the, the first bit. Secondly, I, I always tried to support people to do their own thing, to, to do it slightly differently, rather than saying there's only one way. Even here, I, I've started trying to involve and allow athletes to have more input and have more opportunities who aren't based in Bath at our National Training Centre. Whereas historically, it was kind of an unwritten rule of if you weren't based in Bath, then we didn't really want to involve you. Sarah wanted to do it her own way. She um, wanted to be surrounded by her family. And therefore, when she went to competitions, she didn't want to stay with the team. So my view is that's absolutely fine. So I set up a model for her where she could still be paid for it. She could, wouldn't cost her money. She could do things the way she needed to. She'd be supported by the team and she felt part of the team. And I think over time, she felt more and more part of the team. Um, and that really helped with the last example, which was Tokyo. As an athlete mother who has families being central to her in the big part of her last kind of 10 years of her journey and going to Tokyo with COVID uh, and, and all the restrictions about that, that brought with it, I worked quite hard with her to try and identify how do we support you? This, these are your options. And I do think she felt supported to be able to try and make her own decision. Um, and that I'd given her the option of saying, you could do this in different ways, but we want to help you. But I think what it helped most with was when it came to your family can't come, it's just not possible to get into the country. You're going to have to stay with the team for our, our kind of holding camp, uh, kind of our final preparation camp before we fly. You're going to stay with the team and be fully in our environment. But we bespoke her plan. It showed I trusted her and I think she trusted me. And, and I, you know, so the conversation I had with her, I suppose if I took two points in time, when I first started, I'd say it was a bit more hesitant, um, kind of interrogative, um, kind of a what, what's your stance and how am I going to work with you and so on. So when I left, more of a thank you for supporting me. And actually there was a bit of humour and fun and enjoyment. And we talked about stories and stuff and what was coming in the future and what was she doing now and so on. So the relationship changed because I think I showed I cared. And ultimately, I think that's the big bit I'd encourage any leader to show, show you care. I think that's really interesting as well, because quite often, you know, I'll read books and talk to other leaders about how difficult it can be to manage mavericks, experienced people, people that maybe are a little more cynical of the new person stepping into the chair. And another thing that gets raised with me all the time is with new leaders. So I do provide a bit of coaching for people. And one of the first questions always is, well, I've been promoted, but people aren't listening to me. And is a very harsh reality that just because you've got the desk and the office, doesn't suddenly mean that people are going to listen to you or give you credibility. It has to be earned. And especially in today's day and age, hierarchical thinking is just not a thing anymore. So it's interesting to hear you talk about being a vulnerable leader, caring about people, finding ways in and just demonstrating over time that you're a good guy and you've got their back. And I think that sometimes definitely it can be an underrated skill set. So, John, a couple of quick fire questions for you. 
First question, the title of the podcast is The Olympic Mindset. Do you think you could define very quickly three features of an Olympic mindset? Oh, determination, an element of selfishness and clarity of goal and where we're trying to get to. And if you could go back and speak to a young John Pett, sat there with your mum and your dad, you know, or or even better when you were unemployed, (laughs) we had that really rocky patch. What would you say to him? You haven't got all the answers. Uh, You possibly ever will do. Continue enjoying things and and get the most out of every experience you have. Uh, Third thing, probably work a bit harder. Don't just take things for granted. John, it's been absolutely fascinating to talk to you and hear how you are leading in a very different way. Something I never expected, actually, especially from such a successful performance director over a series of different sports. And as I've already said to you before we spoke today, I was really interested to hear how you managed to navigate not knowing everything you needed to know in each of those different sectors and and each of those disciplines. So it's clear to me that there is a way of finding success if you can have the kind of soft skills to back it up. John, thank you very much for joining me today. It's a pleasure to see you. And you. Thanks very much. It's a shame you weren't in your shark costume, John. Oh, no. Never mind. (laughs) Thanks for joining me, Dominic Broad, at the Olympic Mindset Podcast, brought to you by NAHT, the School Leaders Union. Don't forget to hang around and listen to our Charity of the Week. It's a short segment at the end of this podcast that explores amazing charities doing sensational work across our country and wider. Thank you for joining us today and see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Olympic Mindset Podcast. As you know, at the end of every episode, we offer a platform to a charity doing amazing work. This week's guest is Holly Richardson. Holly is the Marketing and PR Officer for Winston's Wish. Hi, Holly. How are you? Yeah, really well, thank you. How are you? Good. So, Holly, just talk to me a little about why you are in touch with us. Why would you like to share and promote your charity through the Olympic Mindset Podcast? Yeah, so we've been sort of following the podcast for a while and um, our director of fundraising, Paul's a big fan. We think that sort of everything you're doing towards coaching and leadership within the sports sector and, and education is brilliant. And um, and we just thought that it was a really, really great fit with with what we do. And Yeah, it's a good match. And and I would agree with that, actually, having spoken to Paul. So, Paul, big, th- big shout out to Paul. And thanks for reaching out to us as well on social media. Holly, if you don't mind, would you run us through exactly what your charity does, the name of it and, and how it came about? Yeah, sure. So, um, we're Winston's Wish. Uh, we were established 30 years ago, so in September we mark our 30th birthday. It was founded as the UK's first childhood bereavement charity. It was set up by Julie Stokes. She was working in, in hospitals in a setting and found that there wasn't any support available for, for the children and young people af- after someone close to them had died. Well, first of all, what a remarkable lady. I think that's amazing to have the kind of foresight to do that. Some of the stuff you do is quite remarkable. Um, is there anything coming up at the moment, Holly, or anything that's been going on at the moment that is quite is worth sharing? With it being our 30th in September, what, what we're planning to do, and, and it's really exciting, is we're going to focusing on the young people, bringing young people um, right up to the age of 25 into the work we do, using their voices um, and making sure that everything that we're saying and doing is really through their lens. I really respect that you're doing that because sometimes if you've been through a bereavement or if you've been through something really difficult, you just need somebody to talk to about it. And 
more importantly, you need somebody to not be scared to talk to you about it. So it's amazing that you're doing that and you're offering that platform to those children. And it's re- it's remarkable to me that so many people are left without support when they've suffered a bereavement. Yeah, so we have various ways that we we sort of support um, children and young people. So we've got um, the, the helpline. So that's kind of where people can call um, and that's open 8 till 8, Monday to Friday. The helpline number is 0808. 8020021. Do you guys do any work with schools or organisations that go into schools to support children? So on our website, we've got loads of resources. We've got resources um, for children, we've got resources for young people, and we've got resources for professionals as well. And um, we update that with kind of blogs, tips, what's going on. Um, and you can find that at winstonswish.org. And within the website, there's a sort of another site called Help to Make Sense. And that's if you click on the tab Young People, and that's um, sort of a site led by young people and their stories um, and their experiences of grief as well. 